Welcome to That Shit Show, a podcast about overcoming trauma. I'm Emma Castle. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mel O'Brien. Mel is a doctor of international law and a professor at the University of Western Australia. Welcome, Mel. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Mel, you have a pretty unusual specialization. So, can you talk us through what your kind of area of interest is? Absolutely. So I have a PhD in international law and I specialise in a few different areas of international law. It's a combination of international human rights law, um, international humanitarian law, which is not what it sounds like. It's actually, it's not about humanitarian aid. It's the law of war. So it's the laws that govern um, how countries and people fight wars. Um, And I also do a lot of work in international criminal law, which is the law about uh, prosecuting people for things like war crimes and genocide. And so within that, I do a lot of work in genocide studies, which is one of the main areas of my specialty. Right. So how did you come to be drawn to that area? Like, was it a process where you started researching and you were just drawn in by the actual um, I guess the material or what drew you to that? It started in high school. So I did really high levels of history when I was in high school, like the history three unit. And I just loved history. And already in high school, I was studying, um, things like Chinese history, uh, modern Chinese history from the 1940s and other events like the Holocaust. So I was already becoming aware of those kinds of things. Um, when I was in high school. And so I then went to uni and uh, alongside my law degree, I did a BA in history and French. So I did a lot more of history then, which again started to specialise in areas like modern US history, including the Vietnam War, uh, a lot more specialisation in um, nationalism and fascism. And so things including um, Mussolini's uh, administration and the Holocaust again. And Along all that, I always wanted to be a criminal lawyer ever since my mum used to watch LA Law. So it was kind of this perfect melding of those two interests because international criminal law really is a lot about history because it, it is when, when mass atrocities happen, I mean, it's history in the making. Those are the types of things we read about in history books. But when you actually do the work, it's also historical because you're looking at what happened in the past. So it's this perfect combination of my two interests in criminal law and history. But I guess I was also drawn to it more broadly because I have a very strong interest in social justice generally. And and these areas, you know, particularly human rights, are part of it. And the idea behind genocide studies is the prevention of genocide, but also the punishment of perpetrators of genocide. Right. So as an academic, are you involved in the punishment or in those trials or like seeking those those um, criminals or is it more that you analyse those trials or that you somehow participate in gathering the research around that to support those trials? How does that work? As an academic, mostly you're doing analysis of the law and the trials, but you can be recruited at times um, for cases uh, depending on the situation. An example 
recent example is the uh, case going through the International Court of Justice in The Hague between Gambia and Myanmar. So Gambia is bringing the case before the ICJ accusing Myanmar of committing genocide and they're asking the court to make a finding on that and to essentially tell Myanmar to stop committing genocide. And um, one of the Gambia's lawyers is Philippe Sands. Now, Philippe is a QC, but he's also an academic. Um, so academics can have dual roles and they can be asked to do things like that. They can Academics can also take on sort of like short-term consultancies with international organisations or be asked to participate in special commissions um, that could be looking into things, into particular incidences, and usually those incidences do tend to be mass atrocity related, actually. Right. But mostly our work is doing research on these issues. So it's looking into, you know, issues with human rights and issues with mass atrocities, trying to understand why these things happen, um, you know, analysing for lawyers, analysing the law and the trials to see if the law itself but also the procedures are properly run, um, you know, and analysing the outcomes to see whether, you know, is this a, a good outcome in this judgment or not, what could be improved, making suggestions for improvements to the law and the processes. Um, and But we also are really trying in the area of genocide studies, um, including because law works really well with criminology, so the idea is behind that is to try and understand about crime and how and when and why people commit crime. So it's, you know, this the idea that people will look into, you know, why do people rob houses? We also try and ask the same question about why do people commit mass atrocities like war crimes or genocide? It's obviously a much bigger question and it's it's tends to be a lot more difficult to answer than just why do people rob houses? But that's what we're basically here to look into. Um, you know, how do they do it? Why do they do it? And what can we do to stop that? And what role does the criminal legal system, whether at domestic level or international level, have in helping to prevent future atrocities? Right. Okay, that is big stuff. So... In your work, have you specifically looked at certain certain atrocities? I know that you've done a lot of work in Cambodia, so the Khmer Rouge and all of that. So um, is that an area that you've specialised in Cambodia particularly? Cambodia is one of the areas that I specialise in. I have three main uh, atrocities that I specialise in and chronologically the first one is the Armenian Genocide um, from 1915, and so I've done a lot of research on that. The second one is the Holocaust, um, obviously from the 1930s and 40s, and then the last one is the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia in the late 1970s. So those are the three ones that I look at mainly, um, but in the past four or five years, I've also taken on a lot of research looking at the ongoing Rohingya genocide of the Rohingya peoples in Myanmar, um, most of whom have fled to uh, refugee camps in Bangladesh. So those are my uh, main case study areas. And usually in, in genocide studies, people have particular case study areas that they specialise in and focus on. Um, I also do a lot of work in Bosnia as well related to um, the conflict there generally and the Srebrenica genocide. 
Right. So do you visit these places? Do you speak to the victims of these um, where in that's possible, like where there's family members or people who survived these regimes? Um, do you speak to those people? I do. So that is a major part of my research. And it's actually what makes my research different from other lawyers who are researching in this area, because um, international criminal law academics tend to be focused on the law and the trials more so. But my work is what we call interdisciplinary, which means that I do engage with other disciplines like criminology and history and sociology. And so, therefore, I'm not just looking at the law. So it's really important that I do actually talk to the survivors. And so that's a major part of what I do. So, And I do travel to a lot of different places. Um, I Obviously, I have not interviewed survivors of the Armenian genocide because they have all all passed away by now. Um, But I've done things like in Armenia, been to the archives there and accessed um, survivor testimonies that were taken in the immediate aftermath of the genocide. Um, So there are sort of, there are other ways to access survivor testimony other than direct interviews. Another example, there are a lot of videos of survivor testimonies Um, and also oral recordings of survivor testimonies from the Holocaust. Uh, So they, you know, they're a a great resource for academics to access. I have met plenty of Holocaust survivors, though, and been able to interview them. Um, Another way you can access survivor testimony is by going to museums. So a lot of genocide sites get turned into museums and they actually will play video of survivor testimonies about what happened at that particular site. For example, uh, if you go to the Bergen-Belsen site, they have um, those kinds of videos available there. And I've done quite a few interviews in Cambodia and Bosnia as well um, with survivors there. And, you know, that's still really fresh, particularly in Bosnia, because Bosnia, we're talking about the 1990s. So the effects of the armed conflict there, they're, they're still happening. Um, So I think that you can't really look at atrocities and understand them and understand what you should do as a lawyer if you haven't talked to the people who survived them because otherwise you can't really understand what it was like. And reading a history book gives you this big overview. Yes, you know there were camps. Yes, you know there were death marches, for example. But when you talk to individuals, there are so many small aspects to their experience that, well, they seem small, but they're actually quite significant. And they go through a lot of things that are bigger than just being in a camp. You know, it's, it's what was their everyday life like in the camp, and, but all sorts of other things. And you find out that, that their experience in genocide doesn't just end when the killing ends, it it stays with them for the rest of their life. And so it's really important to hear their individual stories. Um, And it's also actually important for them. I've only ever had a couple of people not want to be interviewed and it's very cathartic for them to tell their story and to tell their story to someone who is listening to them and believes them. And that's particularly the case in places like Cambodia and Bosnia. In Cambodia, I've had people cry because they are so grateful for someone to listen to their story because even their family doesn't believe 
when they talk about what happened to them under the Khmer Rouge because it seems so fantastical. So doing these interviews in academia, we we have this, this thing that we're supposed to achieve called impact and it's a box-ticking exercise and this has to go through to the government to prove that we're making impact. And there's a very strict definition of what that is and one thing that doesn't fit in that I think is the most important thing in my research, the impact that my research is making, is that I'm someone that these survivors can talk to and who believes their story and listens to them and the impact of that cannot be a box-ticking exercise. Well, because that makes you a counsellor. That makes you, you're providing a therapeutic service to these people um, that is kind of not identified as part of your job. And I mean, you have like a very multifaceted job as it is, but it's that role is certainly, it doesn't sound like it's an identified part of your role, but as it, as it evidently is part of your job, um, how does that impact you? How does it, that's a lot of um, history to carry with you. That's a lot of stories. That's a lot of um, things that you've seen that other people maybe haven't had access to because there is that whole world of dark tourism, you know, museums and sites of atrocities. But I'm guessing you have access to stuff and stories that are untold and unseen. So how do you carry that within your psyche? Um, Is is it that you know you're pushing for justice and you know you're um, heading towards the light, so to speak? Does that help or or does it just weigh you down sometimes? It's both. So I couldn't continue doing what I'm doing without that motivation that you're talking about, this, this desire to help contribute to a bigger justice system. And I know that means a lot to the people I mean, I'm very clear that I explain to them what I do in my role, that I don't work for the court, um, but that I hope that the courts will read my work and it will influence their decisions and their actions um, because that, that does happen. Our work is read by courts, cited by courts. So I'm very, I do explain that very clearly to them. Um, but, that, you know, just the fact that I am willing to listen to them means so much to them and so that is really something that keeps me going. And hearing their stories and what they went through also keeps me going because what they've been through is is just so horrific. Like just the stories I've heard are, are really, really, really awful. And they need someone to speak for them. They need someone. And I can do that in a particular way. I'm I'm part of a machinery that I'm lucky that I can do that for them. I can be their voice. And so for me, that's really important. You know, marginalised people partly are marginalised because their voices aren't out there, their voices are suppressed. And so I am in a privileged enough position that I can help be their voice, which means a lot to me. At the same time, as I said, it's a bit of both. It is is a a lot to carry. Um, And when I'm doing field work, I'm usually by myself. Um, obviously, I work with um, interpreters when I need them. But overall, I'm working alone and hearing these stories, uh, you know, and I sit, I usually tell them an hour, but I can be sitting for a long time. You know, they can be telling me their stories for two or more hours. And it's a lot to hear. And 
Um, I've been doing this now for almost 20 years, I think it is now, um, and about half of that focused on genocide studies, but all of those years focused also on um, gender and gender-based and sexual violence against women. So it, it has become very, very challenging for me. Um, it's sort of a build-up after <laughs> so many years of hearing these stories and carrying with them. I mean, even just reading sometimes, reading sources when I'm in my office, I sometimes have to stop reading because I just, I really need a break from taking in such awful content. It is very challenging. Well, I guess you understand context of the context that these things happen within. And like, you know, when you hear about an isolated incident, that's terrible. Um, You're shocked and there's a dramatic power to it. But when you understand that this is actually an ongoing thing that's become these people's lives, their whole lives, and it's generational. Um, and that it's actually, to them, it's it's amazing that someone's listening to them because they're like, this should happen to everybody. My whole family went through this. This is totally normal for our community. And so I guess there's like, oh boy, that must be hard when you understand that this isn't an isolated incident. This is stuff that's been going on forever and um, and no one's done anything and there must be a sense of helplessness and why why hasn't the international community stepped up and so I imagine that there'd be a sense of anger as well attached to some of this like what the fuck were people doing um if not protecting these people um yeah absolutely and I it that really is it and that I mean that's an excellent description of it because I do sometimes I'm angry a lot of the time about it Um, But I also sometimes, occasionally, I just get a bit down because I think, what else do we have to do? You know, how loud do we have to scream um, to to get help for these people? Um, You know, it's the world knows what's going on. The world knows what the Myanmar military are doing, certainly by now. So why are they doing nothing? You know, that's one thing, the, the Gambia case that they brought, is just amazing. It, it's so wonderful and inspiring because finally, you know, you have a country that's actually doing something because otherwise it does get quite depressing. I mean, I feel the same way, for example, about, you know, Australia's offshore detention. It just, the fact that it just continues and continues and the government doesn't listen and keeps these people in detention is just awful it's really, really awful. And it's those kinds of things that do get, get me down and make me wonder, you know, what else can we do to stop this kind of thing happening? Uh, you know, we already work so hard, those of us, you know, who are academics, who are activists, um, you know, NGO workers, lawyers, you know, there's a lot of people working against this, but it still happens. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, frustration, a little bit of depression and a lot of anger. So how do you deal with that? Like how you are an extremely qualified person and you're obviously so intelligent. There's other things you could do. Um, but I guess once you've invested so heavily in something, you don't want to just abandon it because it's making you feel really sad. 
<laughs> and possibly developing a drinking problem. I'm only joking about that. But like, how do you cope? Like, how do you actually manage to shake some of this stuff off? Like, is there a sense where you can, where you can draw a line? Um, do you have any self-care practices so that you can keep going? Because someone with your skills is so vital, but it, it's the work, it's that glacial pace at which things happen. Um, and so it's that need for patience and resilience in people like you because the change will happen, but it just takes possibly a whole lifetime, your whole lifetime. So how do you accept that and how do you kind of look after yourself so that you know that you can keep going? Well, I don't want to lie. I've had moments where I've thought that I might working in the fashion industry might be more fun. <laughs> uh, that has crossed my mind. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. So, um, and I'm not the only one. I, I think the conversation has opened a lot more up in the past couple of years. So there's sort of a couple of elements to this in talking about self-care. When I'm doing field work, um, I usually do yoga while I'm away in the hotel room or usually cheaper, much cheaper apartment that I'm staying in um, just to make sure I have a bit of exercise and a bit of kind of quiet time to myself. Um, it is really difficult when I'm away because I, I'm by myself um, and it depends where I am. Actually, ironically, when I'm in Sarajevo, I have a better social life than I do at home. Um, and, and that actually is really helpful because, I, you know, I know all these great people that work there, um, academics, people in the U.S. Embassy, um, at, you know, doing all sorts of amazing things. And, you know, I, I go to dinner and embassy pub quizzes and all these kinds of things. And that's actually been the greatest part to help me when I've been in field work um, is, is having that, uh, I guess, social net. But that's really only in Sarajevo. Um, unless I'm doing field work with colleagues, which is very rare, but that helps a lot as well because actually once we've done the field, finished the field work for the day, we stop talking about it. We don't, we don't talk about our work at all. We, we switch off and talk about other things, and I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, but mostly I'm by myself and it is really difficult. And some days I come back to the apartment and I cry because I try not to cry when I'm doing interviews because I've got to get through the interview. Um, and, you know, it's better to keep my composure. So some days I just, you know, I, once I get back, you know, I have to let that out. Um, but basically and, I, and I've been in a discussion with some colleagues who also do work, not just in genocide studies, but other colleagues who work in areas like domestic violence research. And um, there's a bunch of us that have started getting um, like psychologist or psychiatric help over the past essentially really 12 months or so um, because long-term um, effects of this and all of the people who are doing this are people who do direct interviews with domestic violence or genocide survivors. Yeah. So I think that's been something that needs to be talked about a lot more and encouraged a lot more for people who do this kind of work is to actually get counselling of some kind, whether it's psychologist or psychiatrist, because doing yoga 
is one thing, but that doesn't help you actually deal with the content and process the content that you are dealing with. Um, And especially when you're actually on field work, it's a little bit easier to cope when you're at home because you're in your home environment, you're comfortable, you've got your usual, you know, exercise and social activities. But um, it's, I, I think, you know, psychiatric or psycho, psychological help for people in this field is really essential. And one of the things that I'm starting to do, um, it's been a little bit um, uh, sidetracked because of obviously what's going on this year, but I'm starting to look at doing research into these issues for researchers who actually do this kind of work. So looking at not just basic self-care, but really psychological issues. There's a couple of people who've looked at this um, for human rights field workers and for journalists, like um, war correspondents, like journalists. Um, But I want to have a look at that for academics, you know, who are out in the field. We're going to genocide sites. Um, You know, we're looking at, at bones and we're talking to people who survive these horrific things. So um, I, I want to look more into that because I want to get a system together f- for these scholars to, to say, hey, here are some specific things that you can do and not just yoga, um, but, you know, a lot more to really help your mental health in processing what you are hearing when you are or, or seeing when you are doing this work. Mm, yeah well I is there an association or something like that you know um where people who work in these fields can kind of gather even even online because just anecdotally things like the the veterinarians association apparently their annual conference is more like a big support group because like vets get pretty bummed out because they see some pretty terrible behavior from humans and um and you know so there are certain fields that have high risk so judges dentists veterinarians and it sounds like genocide um researchers and also domestic violence researchers like there's particular fields that are high risk um in terms of suicide the suicide risk um because i guess when you're dealing with this kind of material in an ongoing kind of way like it changes your worldview so do you feel as though your worldview has been shifted and if so, how has it shifted and, and how do you cope with that shift? We do have associations. So there's a lot of academic associations for different fields. And we have, I'm actually the second vice president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars. Ah, cool. And so we have a conference every two years. And, you know, we're, I'm, I'm very, very close to my colleagues in that. We, we, I would not call them colleagues. I would call them friends. Um, and I think part of that is because of what we study, because it's so extreme that we are a support network for each other and that's really important. And, you know, we do visit each other. We we stay at each other's places. We, we travel together. We do field work together. And so that is an ex- incredibly important connection that we have um, in that association. And it's very different from any other academic associations I'm in, actually. And I think that's because of what we do and what we research, um, the closeness that we have there. In terms of my worldview, oh, yes, I'm a lot more cynical than I was at 20. <laughs> a lot more cynical. Um, 
I'm a lot more socialist, I think. Um, uh, a lot, a lot, I want to say a lot angrier, I guess. Um, uh, but also, in a way, a lot more confident about what I can do and what other individuals can do to try and contribute in this sense, you know, to try and show support for so things like social justice and, you know, to kind of fight against unfair, unequal government policies and laws. Um, but, yeah, a lot more cynical. So it sort of sounds like you could be headed for politics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like Julian Burnside. No, no, no. Oh, I, <laughs> it has crossed my mind, to be honest with you. Um, but the idea of dealing with a lot of people who just ha- refuse to answer questions that are asked of them, I just could not deal with that on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Um, I guess, like, from what you've seen, is is there a way of ameliorating these behaviours in atrocity situations, in war situations? Like, is there any way of stopping the bad shit that people do in wars? Like, you know, because it's almost like they feel as though anything goes during war, like it's anything goes in love and war. And what, in your experience, would stop that or kind of curb that behaviour? I know it feels like that and probably the reason that you feel like that is because the media only reports on the bad stuff. So they only report on war crimes basically. But actually every day we see people who comply with the laws of war, with international humanitarian law, but that doesn't get reported. So, you know, for example, it doesn't get reported that a checkpoint let through a Red Cross ambulance so that people could get um, medical attention. And, and I think that's that's a problem. And actually, so I volunteer with the Australian Red Cross. I'm in the International Humanitarian Law Committee. And one of the things that we really do work on when we have events, so we run public events um, and we run uh, events for CPD, for lawyers, um, and, and it's usually talking about things like the Geneva Conventions. So last year we talked about the anniversary of the Geneva Conventions. And one of the things that we really try and do is to not, not be completely negative, but we, also, we always want to show people that actually every day there are people who comply with international humanitarian law. And a couple of years ago, the International Committee of the Red Cross issued a report and it's called The Roots of Restraint in War. And because basically they wanted to know what you've just asked, they wanted to know what what makes some militia, some soldiers actually comply with international humanitarian law? What makes them behave with restraint in war instead of just going out and killing people? So it was really interesting. And they found, I mean, I, I can't talk about don't have time to talk about all of it here, but there's a lot of things that influence it and it's it's all manner of things. And it could be, for example, that, you know, a, a militia group doesn't raid a village and, and loot the village because they want to keep the people on their side. You know, so there, there can be social considerations as well, not just that the law is there. So it's not only the law that influences them, but there are a lot of social reasons why groups do comply with international humanitarian law. Um, but the law is one of them. So the law does, it does make a difference. And so, so even though you hear about all the bad stuff, there's, there is some good stuff 
you know, with people <laughs> not committing war crimes as well. So, so to answer your question about what can stop it, the law is one thing that stops it, but also social pressure, you know, and that's why in terms of thinking about our government committing human rights abuses like offshore detention, for example, social pressure, write to your MPs, write to your representatives, you, you know, whether they're in government or in opposition, write to them because social pressure makes a difference. Right. Okay. So what's next for you? Like in terms of, will you keep studying the areas that you've been studying or um, will you move on to the next atrocity of which there is always another one or how does it work? Like you mentioned that you're um, going to write a book. So what's your book about? Yeah, so I'm writing a book at the moment, which I'm about halfway through, and my book is called From Discrimination to Death, and it's based on research that I've been doing on the four situations that I mentioned, um, Armenian Genocide, Holocaust, Cambodia, and the Rohingya, and it's a focus on looking at human rights abuses in genocide, so it's a very different way of looking at genocide and seeing what happens, and this is where I'm drawing on the individual stories and not just the overall picture. Um, but the idea behind my book is that I'm showing that there's a there's actually a particular pattern of human rights abuses, very specific human rights abuses that occur in genocide. So not all human rights are targeted during genocide, but very specific ones, and they're done in a very specific order. So by looking, by seeing this pattern, it's something that can be used to help prevent genocide when when we're about midstream in the in the process so before people start getting killed because genocide actually is a process that starts a long time before people being killed and the reason for that is that you can't just start killing people out of nowhere like that that won't work so it has to be a process where the regime uh through propaganda and 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 other measures dehumanizes their targeted group and so it's only by creating an image of this particular targeted group as inhuman that they can ultimately, they're able to kill them en masse. Because if you just started to try and kill people en masse, then every, you know, the pop, general population would be like, whoa, what are you doing? But if you have converted that general population to thinking that this target group is evil, they are bad, you know, they have done bad things to us to protect our country. We need to get rid of them. They are the enemy. So they spend a lot of time building up and taking a lot of actions and slowly passing laws to discriminate against this group. So all through this process, this is part of genocide. So my book is looking at what are the human rights violations that occur through that process. Um, and, and the idea is also that um, this will be able to be used by courts, by prosecutors when they're arguing that genocide did take place and for judges when they're trying to determine whether or not it was genocide that happened. So that's what I'm working on at the moment and, well, sort of working on because, of course, COVID-19 has thrown everything out the window. Um, Now I'm putting all my teaching online instead. Um, But that's my goal at the moment and uh, I'm, I'm not really sure what I'll be doing after that. Um, but definitely working on this idea of looking into, of, of researching into, you know, mental health for genocide um, researchers. 
Right. So what advice would you give someone? If someone's thinking of entering this area, what advice would you give them from someone who is a seasoned seasoned professional? (laughs) It's challenging. Working in international law generally is challenging. Um, First and foremost, just getting a job is really difficult. It's very competitive. There aren't that many positions um, and that makes it really challenging to get a job. You know, whether you're talking about in academia or you're talking about working for an NGO or for the UN or something like that. And especially for people in Australia, it's even more challenging because where are all the organisations? They're not in Australia. They're in North America and they're in Europe. And so geography actually is a challenge for us. So be prepared for the challenge. I I know that's a negative answer, but I always try and be realistic because I, you know, I worry that students come through and they expect, oh, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to be prosecuting in the International Criminal Court. Sort of, you know, it isn't that easy. And I, and I want, you know, people who are interested in this to be aware that it's difficult. But you can still do really important and amazing work in social justice and human rights in our own backyard. You know, working with local organisations, Go work in the government and try and make sure that you bring a human rights perspective to your portfolio in the government. So there are definitely ways that you can do that without having to, you know, oh, I'm going to go work for the UN. Um, So, yeah, it's, you know, and I've got a friend of mine, an Australian friend of mine, who's who's done various work for the UN over the years. cynical about the UN so it's not always the best option out there if you if you really want to make a difference and honestly a small organization on the ground you are more likely to really see the difference you make with you know individual people who need help yeah okay well thanks so much Dr O'Brien it's been such a pleasure and such an eye-opening conversation I look to be honest I hate to say it like I've heard the term martial law and stuff but I didn't really understand that there were like actual laws of war I know that's dumb (laughs) but it's not like this is not obvious stuff that people know I know it because I've spent years studying it so don't ever think that you know I don't expect people to know about all of this kind of stuff and that's why with the Red Cross we run these events so you know, if you or anyone else who's listening is interested in that, um, check with your state uh, Red Cross because we do run regular courses for the public um, called like Introduction to International Humanitarian Law and or we do more specialised topics and you're absolutely welcome to come and attend these. Um, you know, that's what they're for, to help people learn a bit more about it. Well, that is interesting and I will be coming along. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mel. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks. You've been listening to That Shit Show. If you like what you heard, please head to the website, thatshitshow.com to download more episodes or read the show notes. Also, if anything you've heard today has triggered you and made you upset in any way and you'd like to talk about it, please head to the Lifeline website, lifeline.org.au. The number to call is 131114 because this is heavy stuff and I understand that it can bring up your own emotions um, and your own traumas. So please do reach out for help. Uh, And in the meantime, thanks so much for listening.